0: I'm going to let you take this, brother. I don't know how to work it anyway. Let me show you the <laughs> thing about this. I can stand right here while you start talking. While I'm talking? So you could be talking. I could be talking. Yeah, just keep talking. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk. Keep talking. Can you me off? <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. Uh, I don't know how to work those gadgets, but that's okay. I don't need to. We got people that do know how. I'm glad to see you this morning. We've got a lot of people away, a lot of people on the road traveling. Um, I'm batching it, Joyce and Leah are in Florida with our older daughter, Jen, and her family enjoying Christmas, and so uh, they'll be back here this next week. So don't worry about me, just pray for me. You know, somebody said, how are you enjoying the quietness? Well, there's some good things about the quietness and there's some bad things about the quietness. But um, anyway, we had a good Christmas. I've had several conversations this morning with, with different ones of you about what Christmas Day was like for you guys. And One of the things I've determined, even before I got here this morning, is that every Christmas from now on is always going to be different. They're never going to be the same. Because we're getting older and the dynamics of Christmas and relationships and family and, you know, where everybody's at, it, it, it just changes. And uh, we, got up, we got up Christmas morning, first time ever in my life where I didn't have to get up early because we didn't have anybody coming. And it was just me and Joyce and the dog and it was good. And, and so I got to do some things on Christmas morning that I've never got to do before, and, and that was good. Again, different. We got in the car about uh, 12-ish, going over to Leah and Jesse's, and we're, we're driving down the road And as we drove through Smithville. Everything was closed down. There were no stores open. And I thought to myself, That's a beautiful thing. Why? It's because on one day, one man changed everything. And it started on the day of his birth. No other person ever born in this world has been able to impact our world like Jesus Christ and while my Christmas was different this year it was different in a good way because of Jesus and 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 I I like that we get so caught up in the busyness of this world and we we think this world is out of control and in many ways it is I uh, wasn't sure whether I was going to have a PowerPoint this week, but because of technology, Leah was able to do it last night in Tampa, send it to Art this morning, and you're going to have, oh, and by the way, he, he looked, this back there earlier, he looked at the sermon title and he says, are you sure this is your sermon? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Actually, she left off something. It was entitled 2020 Politics and Religion. Hmm. God is doing something in my life. And he's teaching me some things that maybe up to this point I've been too bullheaded to understand. I hope he'll teach you some things. I hope you'll listen today. Um, I think I know where I'm going to be probably the next three or four Sundays, which is pretty rare for me. But it's going to be right around that. And I think it's timely. I encourage you to encourage people who are not here today to go online and listen to this message today. And to be here next week and bring people with you because I think God's going to stir our hearts about some things. I want to begin this morning by reading a quote for you, and we're going to be in the Bible. If you've got your, your Bible with you, we're going to go some places because I'm going, to, I'm going to read a lot of scripture today, and if you've got it on your phone, just be ready and be fast because we're going to look at quite a few places in the, in the Word of God. But I want to begin this morning by, by reading for you a quote from a British biologist who is an evolutionist, which is crazy. Because I'm not an evolutionist. I, I'm a creationist. I believe in creation. Amen? Amen. But, but this guy says something that impacted my life. And, and I read him and several other people over the last couple of weeks preparing for today. And I want to share with you some words by Thomas Henry Huxley. Uh, at the opening of John Hopkins University back in September the 12th, 1876. 1876. He's addressing a large crowd of people and he says you're making a novel experience, experiment in politics on the greatest scale which the world has yet seen. 40 million at your first century. It is reasonable to be expected that at the second these states will be occupied by 200 millions of English speaking people spread over an area as large as that of Europe with climates and interests as diverse and those as those of Spain, Scandinavia, England, and Russia. Great introduction. But then he says this. You and your descendants have to ascertain, you have to decide, whether this great mass will hold together under the forms of a republic and the despotic re- reality of universal suffrage, whether states' rights will hold out against centralism. Uh, uh, s- centralization, Let me let me get that right. Centralization, he spells it differently in his speech. He's British, I mean, you know. But what he's basically talking about when he says centralization, he's talking about big government. Let me read that again. Whether state rights will hold out against centralization without separation, whether centralization will get the better without actual or disguised monarchy, whether shifting corruption is better than a permanent bureaucracy, and as population thickens in your great cities and the pressure of what is felt, the gaunt spectra of pauperism. Pauperism is defined as a culture where people live poorly on tax-supported charity, welfare. He says, the gaunt specter of populism will stalk among you and communism and socialism will claim to be heard, want to be heard, want to be experienced. His last words were these. Truly America has a great future before her. Great in toil, great in care, and great in responsibility. Great in true glory, if she be guided in wisdom and righteousness. And great in shame, if she fails. Almost 150 years ago, those words were spoken. I also read... Some by Robert P. George. He's an American legal scholar who now works and is tenured at Princeton. And in April of 2016, he said this. A licentious people. That is a word you'll find in scripture. And it's found in Paul's writings where he's talking about sinful acts. If you look up the word licentious, it means a people who live in disregard to law and order, who are morally unrestrained, restrained, especially in the area of sexual activity. Specifically, sexual activity. I, I caught myself wondering, what is the percentage of Americans that live this way? God knows. He said, a licentious people is not going to sustain a Republican government. We've got to make sure that Republican government, government not only of the people as all governments is, but by and for the people doesn't perish from this earth. If we lose it here, and he's pointing to America, the last frontier of Republican government. If we lose it here, he says, it's not as if it's going to be restarted somewhere else. In other words, folks, this is the best chance it's got. I found that rather interesting given the fact of some words that Benjamin Franklin spoke back in 1787. At the close of the Constitutional Convention in in 1787, When queried as he left Independence Hall on the final day of deliberation Benjamin Franklin was asked by a lady she said well doc what have we got here is it a republic or is it a monarchy to that Benjamin Franklin said it is a republic if you can keep it you see that's the question can we keep our nation as a republic? Some have debated through the years about the date of this quote, but the quote itself has never been debated. Nor should we question the seriousness of this potential reality. And you go, well, wh- well what reality are we talking about? The reality that we can, we could lose everything that America has been and stood be- since its beginning and I say that because our present existence is very fragile just because America is here today is no guarantee that we're going to be here tomorrow and it most certainly will not if we as citizens of this great nation don't do our part in carrying it forward We're on the threshold of a new year. 2019 is almost gone and 2020 is knocking at the door of our calendars. We know the struggles that we have had in 2019. And they have been many and they have been great. But what does 2020 have in store for each of us? Only God knows. But he knows. However you would answer that question, and only time will tell. This one thing I do know as I stand before you right now on this day, that it will not be without debate on the subject of politics and religion. It cannot be. Throughout your Bible, you will see that it's easy to understand and see the political rim that, that it's not ignored by God. I confess to you even today I don't like politics I never have and I'm sure I never will I don't see myself ever running for anything political but then God's in charge I don't like politics and in so many families if you want to start an argument then you bring up the subject of of politics and religion right (laughs) That's why these two subjects are so often avoided by us. But my friends, I want you to know that the Bible is the book of religion. And it's not just a book on religion. It is the book of religion. And guess what? The Bible is thick with political situations and accounts. The Bible does not avoid the subject of politics. Nowhere does it do that. If you open up your Bible and look into the Old Testament, you'll see that God gave us the book of 1 and 2 Kings that primarily deal with the rule and the reign of governmental leaders. Go back and look into the book of Leviticus and you will see the establishment of a system of laws that were to be administered by a religious form of government. In that day, it was the Levitical priesthood. Throughout the Old Testament, religion and politics are not ignored and nor are they separate but clearly the formational root of government is always a theocracy the object of religion and politics is always distinctly god if you take your bible again and look into the new testament you'll quickly see that men of god unashamedly oppose bad government John the Baptist publicly condemned the immoral conduct, the licentiousness of Herod Antipas, which promptly led to his execution. You'll take your Bibles and look with me at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. You'll see the story as Mark recorded it. He said, Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because People everywhere were talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist, come back to life again. That is why he can do such miracles. Others thought that Jesus was the ancient prophet Elijah, and still others thought that he was a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he himself said, John, the man I beheaded has come back from the dead. The story goes on in verse 17 to say, For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. And John, the Baptist, kept telling Herod, It's illegal for you to marry your brother's wife. Herodias was enraged and wanted John killed in revenge, but without Herod's approval. She was powerless. And Herod respected John. He had a a great respect for John, knowing that he was a good and holy man, so he kept him under his protection. Herod was disturbed. I think that was a conviction that he would get every time that he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. So every time they had a conversation, he came away convicted. Verse 21 said, Herodias' chance finally came. It was Herod's birthday, and he gave a party for his palace aides, for his army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased them. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything that you like, and I will give it to you. And then he made a promise to her and he said, I will give you whatever you ask up to half of my kingdom. She went out and she asked her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother said, go in and ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back into the king and, and she said to him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now and I want it on a tray. At that point, the king was very sorry. Sorry that he had made that promise. But he was embarrassed to break the oath in front of his guests. So he sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in prison and brought his head on a tray and gave it to the girl who took it then to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came for his body and they buried him in a tomb. Well, as you can see, I told you, that the Bible's full of stories where trails of politics and religion cross and things got messy and things got dangerous God's Word does not ignore the subject of politics and religion and neither does it ignore the fact that it's dangerous when you mix the two but listen as much as I don't like to admit it the two have to be discussed and the two have to be mixed Christians have to be involved in the political arena Just as much as we are in the kingdom work of God. I believe that's part of the problem today. We are not involved in politics enough. On one of Paul's trips to Thessalonica. Paul and his missionary team was charged with committing treason against the Roman Empire. For insisting that there was another king. A man named Jesus. Luke records that in Acts 17. If you want to turn there. Beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, now Paul and Silas travel throughout the towns of Amphipolis I'll get that right in just a minute. My tongue's not working this morning. Amphipolis and Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica. That's a mouthful. Woo! Amphipolis. Who would name a town that? Where there was a Jewish synagogue And as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service and for three Sabbaths in a row, he interpreted the scripture to the people. He was explaining and proving the prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, about the suffering of the Messiah and his rising from the dead. You see, uh, Jews in that day didn't believe that the Messiah was supposed to suffer in any way and certainly not die. Paul said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. And some who listened were persuaded, and they became converts. They gave their heart to Jesus, including a large number of godly Greek men and also many important women in the city. Verse 5 says, but (laughs) the Jewish leaders, the religious politicians, they were jealous And so they gathered some worthless fellows from the street to form a mob and start a riot. Wow, even back then they did that. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council, before the town government. Paul and Silas have turned the rest of the world upside down, and now they're here disturbing our city, they shouted. And on top of that, Jason has let them into his home, and they are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king, to a man by the name of Jesus. Verse 8 says The people of the city, as well as the city officials, the religious politicians, They were thrown into turmoil by these reports, but the officials released Jason and the other believers after they had posted bail. Interesting. You see, everywhere Paul went, his commitment to Jesus Christ got him in trouble with politicians. And all Paul was trying to do was win his world of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that we should be doing more of. Amen. Amen. You see, we need to understand that. If we don't impact our world for Jesus Christ, then our world is just going to get worse and worse and worse. We also need to understand that every time a theistic worldview collides with a humanistic worldview, there is always going to be trouble. That's what's on the horizon right now in America. And Paul well knew that. He knew this very well, but he did not waver in his commitment to Jesus Christ. And he even took it further. He was critical of those who did. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 talks about that. Paul wrote, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God. Who in his love and mercy called you to share the eternal life that he gives through Christ. You're already following a different way. That pretends to be the good news but is not the good news at all, he says. You're being fooled by those who twist and change the truth concerning Christ. It's amazing how every generation rewrites history. They're trying to tell us that Jesus was something other than who he really is. And they're doing that today more and more. Paul says in verse 8, Let God's curse fall on anyone, including myself, who preaches any other message than the one we're told, we told you about. Even if an angel comes from heaven and preaches any other message, let him be forever cursed. I will say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you welcome that we first preach, let God's curse fall upon that person. He says, obviously, I'm not trying to be a people pleaser. No, I am trying to please God, he says. And if I were still trying to please people, he said, I would not be the servant of Christ. When he wrote to the Romans, he says, do your part to live in peace with everyone as much as is possible. When he wrote his letter to the Thessalonian believers, he said, we speak as messengers who have been approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. He said, our purpose, our purpose is to please God and not people. He is the one. He is the one who examines the motives of the heart he is the one to whom we all will give an answer If you look into the Word of God you'll find that from Genesis through Revelation the struggle of religion God's way and politics man's way is clearly seen but the greatest political and moral rebellion that this world is ever going to see that rises up against God is going to be when the Antichrist sets up his world government of pure evil in his attempt to rule everything. Revelation 13 tells that story, beginning in verse 1. It says, and the dragon, that would be Satan. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw, John says, a beast coming out of the sea. That would be the Antichrist. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power And his throne and his great authority. On one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and they followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and they asked the question, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? In verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth to utter profound words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's half of the tribulation. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven, the church. He was given power to make war against the saints, the tribulation saints, and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. He says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of saints, tribulation saints. If you were here last week, then you would remember that I said that God is very concerned with knowledge. He is concerned with all forms of education. Well, God is also concerned with politics because God, the sovereign ruler of this universe, because he is the sovereign ruler of this universe, Politics matter in a big way to God. God is intimately concerned with the political affairs of every nation and of every people group that live on this planet. David said it so well when he penned these words. He said, I will praise you, O God, among all the people. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and all who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to Him. That's future, folks. That's not happening right now. He says people from every nation will bow down before Him. Why? He said because the Lord is King. The Lord is King and He rules over all the nations. I also said last week that God either causes or allows everything to happen in this world. And that everything flows through God's divine filter. It all happens according to God's master plan. Nothing happens that God does not allow or cause. Likewise, there is nothing that happens in any government around the world that does not flow out of the sovereign rule of Almighty God. Politicians. Cannot trump the will of God. Did you hear me? No politician can trump the will of Almighty God. How do I know that? Well, look with me at Proverbs 21.1. You would do well to read Proverbs. I've done it the last two years and I'm going to do it a third year. I think I'll be reading it when Jesus comes back. There's so much wisdom there. Look at what Solomon says. Oh, and by the way, Solomon speaks as a king, but he also speaks as the son of a king. So he is bearing experiential understanding of this truth. He's had this happen to him. Verse 1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. God turns the heart of a king wherever and whatever direction that pleases God. That should give us comfort, amen? That means that no king, no president, no governor, no house, no senate can thwart the plans of God. No one is more powerful Than Almighty God nobody God is more powerful than our rulers he's more powerful than our government in fact if you seriously look at scripture you will see that God strategically is placing people in the political arena all over the world you gotta remember friends this is not man's world we didn't think this up and bring it into being This is God's world. He created it, and he rules over it. He has a plan, and he has the power to execute that plan. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. Do you remember the story of Joseph? How God put Joseph in Egypt and then raised him up and gave him a very important position of authority, a Jewish man in a forest land. Genesis 41 says, And the, the scene of this takes place as Pharaoh is discussing with his cabinet, with his officials, who's going to oversee their nation. And this is what is said. It says, as they discussed who would be appointed for the job, Pharaoh said, who could do it better than Joseph? For he is a man who is obviously filled with the Spirit of God. This is an Egyptian who worships many gods talking about the one true and living God. Imagine that. Turning to Joseph, Pharaoh said, since God has revealed the meaning of the dream to you, you are the wisest man in the land. I hereby appoint you to direct this project. You will manage my household and organize all my people only I will have a rank higher than you a Jewish man in a foreign land and Pharaoh said to Joseph I will put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt Pharaoh thought that but really God put Joseph in charge Then Pharaoh placed his own signet ring on Joseph's finger as a symbol of his authority. He dressed him in beautiful clothing and placed his royal chain, his royal gold chain, about his neck. Pharaoh also gave Joseph the chariot of his second-in-command. That's like you get the number two limousine. And wherever he went, the command was shouted, kneel down, kneel down, Joseph is approaching. So Joseph was put in charge of all of Egypt, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am the king, but no one will move a hand or a foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Pharaoh was then, he then renamed him Zaphanath paneah and gave him a wife, a young woman named Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, by the way. <laughs> I find that interesting. Maybe the same one, I don't know, but he was a priest of Helopolis. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he made a tour inspection throughout the land. In other words, he is now looking over his new task. Verse 47, and sure enough, for the next seven years, there was a bumper crop everywhere, all across the land. And during those years, Joseph took a portion through taxation of all the crops grown in Egypt, and he stored them for the government, (laughs) for the government in nearby cities. After seven years, the granaries were filled to overflowing. There was so much grain, like the sands on the seashore, that the people could not keep track of the amount. It's amazing what God did through Joseph. Well, what about Daniel? What about Daniel? God, God gave Daniel a position of great influence in two great empires, first in Babylon and then in Persia. Interesting that God could do that. Daniel chapter 2 says, and and these words are are profound because you've read about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud, proud, proud man that thought he was God. But in chapter 2, verse 46, it said, King Nebuchadnezzar bowed to the ground before Daniel and worshiped him and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before Daniel. What would make a king do that? God. The king said to Daniel, truly your God, the God of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the, the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all of his wise men. At Daniel's request to the king, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon. While Daniel remained in the king's court. Oh, that, that took place under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar lost that rule and Darius the Mede took charge. And in Daniel chapter 6 verse 1 it said Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces or states. And he appointed a prince to rule over each of them, kind of like a governor. And the king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the princes and to watch out for the king's interest. Daniel soon proved himself to be more capable than all the other administrators and princes. Because of his great ability, the king then made plans to place him over the entire empire. It's amazing what God can do. Throughout history, you're going to see if you read your Bible that God placed many others in positions of authority and influence always with specific purpose. It's amazing to me as you read the book of Nehemiah, you find that God placed Nehemiah inside the Persian government just so that he could rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and much of that city with foreign government aid and support. God also placed Esther as Queen of Persia so that she could be used to save the Jewish people from annihilation. God even used Deborah as an influential judge in Israel to focus on and accomplish the Lord's agenda. So friends, listen. God knows what he's doing. God knows who to put in government. And and he has the power to strategically place people where they're needed so that his perfect will can be accomplished. We have that kind of God that we serve. Again, the king's heart, Solomon said, is like a stream of water directed by the Lord, and he turns it wherever he pleases. Well, since civil government is set up by God's design and is important to him, should it be unimportant to us? I think not. I think not. Should we care about politics? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, according to the word of God, every leader who is placed in a position of authority by God has a responsibility to you and me. Well, what about us? Do we have a responsibility to them? Absolutely. We do. What is our responsibility to our leaders? Well, before I answer that, and I'm going to only partially answer that today, I want to make a distinct statement. Before you can be responsible to those in authority over you who are your political leaders, you first have to be responsible to God. Are you hearing me? You've got to be responsible to God. What does that mean? That means that you and I first should take serious our right to vote in our God-given conscience every time we have that opportunity we've got to vote don't complain if you don't vote are you hearing me I, I want you to hear that loud and clear I want you to spread that out you can quote me on that okay I, I want you to I dare you to you you gotta do your part to elect the best politician, the best candidate to accomplish the will of God. We've got to do that. We've got to do that. We have to vote. Every time we have an opportunity to vote, we have to vote. Even in those off years, we've got to vote. Do I need to say that again? We have to vote a God-given conscience. We've got to vote to carry out the will of God. Now, after you've done that here's the first thing I'm going to tell you that you're responsible to do you have to pray for those you voted for you have to even pray for those who got in that you didn't vote for because no man or no woman goes into office that God does not either put there or allow to get there are you hearing me so we got to vote and then we got to pray why because the job of ruling a a government or a city, a nation, whatever that that, that, that role is, the, the responsibility is difficult. At best, it's difficult. And it's difficult because those people have got to make decisions. To be able to make those decisions, they need to be able to hear from God. And they need to have a conviction that, that makes them make decisions that will please God and not men. They don't need to be men pleasers. They need to be God pleasers. And we got to pray for that to happen. And, and, and that means it is extremely critical that those who we put in office know the Lord. Or else they surround themselves with people who know the Lord. They've got to have that kind of influence. You see... Those in office, their biggest battle is serving God and serving people with humility. With humility. So often, a position causes pride. And pride is a problem with God. That's why they need God in their heart. Serving God and people has to be done with humility. Now, you go, well, how can that happen? Well, I can assure you, if you'll read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he was one of the most proud men that this world has ever known. And God humbled him, hum- humbled him to the point that he eventually looked up. And gave credit to God. Many believe that Nebuchadnezzar came to know the Lord personally. I'm one of those. If God can do that to Nebuchadnezzar. He can do that to anybody in Washington. Or in Richmond. Or in our town. He can do it. But we got to pray guys. We got to pray. We also know that they struggle because they have to learn how to find victory over their self. And so do we for any of us to achieve the potential that God has placed within us we have to learn how to conquer the self that seeks to rise up and dominate our lives. How do you do that? Well I knew you were going to ask that question. So I've considered that and I have an answer for you. I want us to consider a man, a man that God placed in leadership at a very difficult time, very much like America And God put him there to turn that nation back to the Lord. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Josiah. You may have read about him. You may not have read about him. But he's a key figure in the word of God. Josiah took the throne of Israel at a very, 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 very difficult time. How bad was it? It was really bad. It was terribly bad. So bad that I want to read the account to you from 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verse 21 verse 21 says Ammon was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for two years he did what was evil in the Lord's sight just as his father Manasseh had done you need to read about that dude Uh, he sacrificed babies to pagan gods hmm Imagine that. He worshiped and he sacrificed all the idols that his father had made. But unlike his father. Ammon did not humble himself before the Lord. Instead Ammon sinned even more. He took it to a different notch than his father had. It was so bad. Verse 24 says at last. Ammon's own officials plotted against him and assassinated him in his palace. But the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against the king. Why? Because you got to be careful when taking out God's man. And Ammon was God's man. Remember? Nobody gets in the office that God doesn't put there. They uh, conspired against King Ammon and they made his son Josiah the next king. Jump into 34th chapter. You find in verse 1 it said Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. 8 years old. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did much better than his dad. His dad only ruled 2 years. Why? Well, verse 2 says he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and he followed The example of his ancestor David, he did not turn aside from doing what is right. Verse 3 says, During the eighth year of his reign, when he was just 16, when he was still young, it said Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. God put him in office at 8, and by 16, he is now seeking God. Seeking God. Hungry for God, wanting God in his life, wanting to please God. And it says, then in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the people's shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols, and cast images. What's he doing? This young man is turning things around in God's direction. And with his leadership, he set out to bring about a great reform, a religious reform in the nation. He also led his nation through a great revival, a spiritual awakening. Imagine a politician doing that. (laughs) Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? Read about the life of Josiah and you will see that Josiah was successful as a leader for several reasons. I've listed four. First of all, he made the decision to break the family cycle of ungodliness. He chose not to be like his grandfather or his father. Instead, he went way back and said, I'm going to be like David because David had a heart for God. Josiah sought after God. He sought him with his own heart. He didn't just want to know about God in his head. He said, I want to know him in my heart. And he came to know him personally. He also led his people by personal example. He didn't just say, do this. He said, let me show you how to do it. But the last thing, he figured out how to achieve victory over his selfish nature. Friends, that's something every politician needs to do. But not only is it something that every politician needs to do, it's something that everybody in this room needs to do. We need to learn how to... to, Rule over our sin nature. Second Chronicles 34 verse 29 talks about how that happened. I, I really wish there was more time. I could spend hours right here. It says, then the king summons all the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem. He said, there's a meeting and you better be there. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord. Imagine that, a politician going to the house of God. And with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least, everybody was there. And there the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Do you understand what that just said? It, we have no idea how long it had been since the Word of God had been read to the people. They didn't care about the Word of God anymore. It was dusty and it was put on a shelf somewhere inside the temple. But Josiah found it. And now, as they, their political leader, he is reading that to the people. It says the king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He came into the presence of God and he pledged to obey the Lord and to keep all of his commandments and regulations and laws with all his heart and soul. And he promised to obey all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. Verse 32 it says, And he required everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin to make a similar pledge. You cannot legislate religion. And I I wish there were, it was clear how this happened. But I know this, he first set the example so that they knew what to do. But then he said, this needs to be your intent. This needs to be your focus. You need to come back to God. And the people of Jerusalem did this And they renewed their covenant with the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the entire land of Israel. And he required everyone to worship the Lord, their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not. The people did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Why? Because they had a godly leader. A man that took serious the will of God. That's what we need in America. What did Josiah do to conquer his sinful self? You see, he had to do that before he could lead the people. Before he could be a great leader. What did Josiah do to conquer his sin nature? Three thoughts. Once he got his hand on the Word of God, he's seeking God already. He's open to God, and he remains open, and he remains teachable throughout his lifetime. If we put it in terminology today, we would say that he was a faithful disciple of the Lord. He wanted to know God more and more every day of his life. That all began when he humbled himself before the Lord. He opened himself up to God. And he chose to depart from the ways of his grandfather and his father. And he sought after God with all of his heart, just like David had done. Can I just ask you a question is is that the way you live your life? Are you open to God? Are you keeping that pathway open so that the relationship you have with God is growing and getting stronger every day? You need that if you don't. We've got to be open and remain open. Second of all, he realized what he personally needed to give, and he gave it. Now, that may seem strange. Why are we talking about giving here? It's because revival is costly. It's costly. Revival requires sacrifice in so many ways. Personal victory over self always carries a personal cost. You will not grow grow closer to the Lord unless it costs you something personally. In this situation, we're talking about a political leader that had a responsibility to lead his people to know God. They were not doing that. Why? Because the temple was in disrepair. There was no place to worship God. There was no active uh, services where they worshiped God. The morals and the value of a, a nation that belonged to God had gone to pot. Ooh, I could say a lot about pot. I'm just saying, we live in Virginia. Read, read, read. What did Josiah do? He goes, well, I'm a person of wealth. I have means. I have personal wealth as well as I control the treasury of our nation. And what did he do? He gave to repair the temple out of his own pocket and the pocket of government. He wanted God's house to be what it needed to be. And he wanted them to be able to worship God, have a place to do that. Can I just applaud you as a church? You've heard me say this. we probably planted over 500 churches in the last 20 years in the state of Virginia. And out of all the churches that have been planted, you are one of less than 10 that have bought land and built a building. That has cost you dearly. We've already given a lot. And it's going to require that we give more. If we're going to keep the lights on and we're going to keep this property and own this building and get it paid for, it's going to cost us more money. But we have a place right in the heart of Smithfield that God has put here strategically to worship God and to win our world to Christ. And you're on the cutting edge. And I thank you and I applaud you. We've got to keep doing this. Because every day in Virginia and across our country, churches are closing their doors, turning off the lights, and they're not having worship anymore because they can't afford it. They're not willing to make that sacrifice. What is it worth to have a place like this? What is a soul worth to God? Well, he gave his son, didn't he? What will you give? What, what, What should I give? we need to give till it hurts because that's what sacrifice does it hurt God to give his son and we have to give like the Lord gave, amen he looked at what needed to be given and he gave it but third he recognized the real key to victory over his sinful self he realized what what it was going to cost what's the key to having that victory you know what it is it's a little word repentance repentance he realized his nation had gone far away from God that was a choice but a choice had to be made we've got to turn around and come back to God that's what repentance is Is turning from sin and self and turning back to God. Repentance is a 180 degree turn. You got to stop walking toward hell and start walking toward heaven. And that's what Josiah did. He knew that he had to be right before God and with God himself before he could lead his nation to be right with God. He did what every responsible leader should do. You do it first before you try to lead your people to do it. You don't say, do this because I I tell you to do it. You practice what you preach and you do it first. And then your people follow you. That's what Josiah did. He repented of his sin. He came clean with God. He got right with God. And as a result, he was able to lead a nation to know God and to live for God that's what we need but I want to say this, before we can expect the white house to get things straight we got to get it straight in our house your house and my house this house in every house but it's got to start with us you know that, that's why the scripture it, that's why first 1 John 1-9 is there John wrote If we confess our sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, that's that's part of repentance, confessing your sin to God. You know, we're talking about finishing 2019 and starting 2020. Why not finish this year well? with a clean heart before God and then starting 2020 with a clean heart before God expecting and knowing you can enjoy the blessings of God Why? because you've done the right thing we need, we need to start our day that way we need to start our year that way I was reading my devotion this morning and I'm going to close with this passage it's not in your notes Psalms 128 Psalms 128 It was a psalm that they would sing as the pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem to worship God. And this is what it says. How joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow His ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within her home. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. Why? Why, that is the Lord's blessing for those who fear God. Those who fear God. I want you to bow your heads. Every head bowed for just a moment. Every head closed. Every eye closed. Open your head. Close your eyes. We'll get it right here in a minute. Father, as Ronnie comes this morning with our team and they prepare to lead us in a time of invitation, I have done everything that I said to you that I would do this morning. I began my day humbly before you, opening up your word, not just to look at my sermon one more time, but opening opening your word to let you speak to my heart. And God, I've shared everything you put in my my mind and my heart to share. And I'm trusting you for what you need to do to help me, to help the people of our church, to help the people of our state and our nation and our world. Oh, Lord, you are almighty God, and there's none like you. You plan for us to be here today, to hear what we've heard. And with your word and with your spirit at work, you have brought us to this point. I'm trusting you, Lord, to help us finish 2019 well. We've got a few more days left in this year, and there there are still things we can do to make this year even better than it's been. Lord, I'm expecting you to help us in 2020. We need your help. We're a sinful people, Lord, and we're undone. So many times we mess up our lives and then we, we try to sweep it under the rug or hide it in a closet so nobody knows about it. But there's nothing we've ever done that you're not aware And you don't just know it so that you can beat us up or judge us or cast us away. You keep vigil over each of us because you love us, because you care. Lord, your conviction is a blessing. And if we're feeling convicted about choices we've made and things we've done, then God, that's you saying, I love you. Lord, help us, all of us who have turned away, to turn back to you. I still believe that revival can start right here in this town. And I believe it can start in this church. But I know that it has to start with me first has to start with each of us as individuals. I know you're calling us home. Help us to listen. And help us to do the right thing. And to be kind as we do it. And help us to walk with you. Lord, some of us need to start that today. Some here may need to know you personally. Others need to just repent. Help us not to be proud. Help us to be humble. Most of all, Lord, help us to give you glory through our obedience to you. Lord, I pray this and I ask this. In the precious name of Jesus, the one who's changed our life and changed our world. The one who is our hope. In you, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to stand. As Ronnie and...